is the location accuracy better? And so we're getting How's your poked, couch detection? poked in a couch. I like that <laughs> word. Yeah, maybe I'll, if I can plagiarize that. Um, Are you eating Doritos or uh, not? <laughs> I just, be cool. I'm thinking about the sad American. It's <laughs> just like on his couch all day long, like move a little bit, go out for a walk, get a dog. We, we could probably help with that. The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Learn more about Optimove by requesting a demo at optimove.com slash business of betting. And if you like what you see, you will get your first month free. Welcome, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of the Business of Betting podcast. I am joined today with Manu Gambier in studio. In studio, I'm really excited to be having in-studio guests. Normally, guests are joining in from Zoom remotely, but today we're in studio in rainy London. Welcome to the podcast, Manu. Thank you, Jason. Very nice to be here. The crazy thing about how many times have, you're from Philly, right? I'm from Philly. Are you asking how many times I've been here? Yeah, how many oh, times have you been to London? I lived in London for four years almost, and then oh, okay. I've been here 100 plus times. Okay, well, you know, it almost never rains in London. That's yeah. one of the biggest misconceptions. I was surprised to see the rain And today. it's, it's yeah. raining today. It rains so little in London. I actually don't own an umbrella. Everybody who doesn't live in London sort of has this idea it rains all the time. But actually, it's just wet. It's just damp. You can best describe the UK as a damp rock, wouldn't you say? I always feel it. Whenever I come, that damp weather gets into my bones. The summers are awesome, but winters are a little rough here with the dark it weather. Yeah. It does feel quite chilly. What were you doing in London before? I came here in 2000 to start an online gambling business. I've been in this field since the mid-90s to date myself. That was my third online gambling business in 2000. Your um, third in 2000? Wow. We, yeah, so I came here. We ended up ended up running a site called HarrodsCasino.com. So you know Harrods and Knightbridge partnered up with Mr. Al-Fayed and used his brand and built that up. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. <laughs> You are the CEO now of a company called XPoint, correct? Yep. And XPoint is a geolocation software trying to compete with right. GeoComply. Correct. So why don't you set that up for the audience and tell everybody sure. about that? Yeah, so XPoint is about three or four years old at this point, and uh, it was set up to compete with GeoComply. So interestingly, if you look at the tech stack of online gaming, Every area has redundancy except for geolocation. I'm talking about in the U.S. markets, right? You have multiple payment providers. You have multiple KYC providers. You have choice of multiple PAM provider system. But when it gets to geolocation, historically, there's only been one, and it's a single point of failure. So that was the impetus for creating competition here, that operators want choice, competition is good. So, yeah, it was created with that goal in mind. It turns out it's a pretty complex technology to build. A lot of money has gone into this. When I joined as CEO in May, I had not been involved in geolocation before. I thought it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. you know, like just check the GPS and you're good to go. That turns out to be far from the truth. And so, okay. you know, we've really been focusing now on how do we build the company through product-led growth, driving uh, new client acquisition, et cetera, and things are going great. So before we get into the weeds, why don't you set the stage for, let's say, for people who know the industry, but like you are coming from the industry, but don't understand geolocation. Why don't you talk about the market size and the position of geocomply in the American market? Sounds good. 
So we ballpark the market size in two ways. So dollar-wise, we think the operators in the U.S. are spending somewhere between 200 to $250 million a year on geolocation mm -hmm. right now. That will go up as more states come online, more people from existing states come online. But also, right now, the pricing is what I would say monopolistic pricing, right? So that's Gouging? Kind of, Gouging yeah. pricing? Do you use I'll, that word? I'll use the word monopolistic, but, okay. you know, I, I think you know, <laughs> that might be a fair way to describe it. Run, um, run away? Yep. But I, so I think pricing will come down. So I think overall, the market will probably go, you know, a little bit higher, 300 million-ish that okay. way. I also look at another way, which is how many location checks are being done per month, for instance. So out of the operators that are the main operators today, we ballpark- Main U.S. operators. Main U.S. operators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Everything I'm talking about today is U.S. focused. That's mm -hmm. where our entire focus is right now. Mm -hmm. We ballpark, it's about 2 billion location checks being done per month. It's obviously tilted very heavily towards tier ones and tier twos and a smaller percentage from the, the smaller operators. But so, you know, our goal is really capture as many of those location checks as possible. I think the two billion probably grow maybe around three billion ish or so per month in the coming couple of years. Um, so that's the market size that's there right now. Okay. And before we get more into the weeds, why don't you set up what the legal requirement is in the United States? Because a lot of people probably don't know that as well. Yeah. So the U.S., you know, it got legalized on a state by state basis mm -hmm. and uh, the dynamics and political environment are different there than we have, for example, here. And that was the impetus for creating these geolocation requirements. So the Wire Act, which I assume you're familiar with, that created the original need for geolocation that, hey, if a state is going to legalize online gambling, they have to make sure it's happening within their borders and it has to be very precise. And New Jersey, of course, was the first. And in the original days, the testing was crazy. Even though I wasn't in the geolocation business at the time, I was helping Wynn Resorts evaluate entry into the market. And so we looked into geolocation way back when from that. You kind of go over the Ben Franklin Bridge in Philly and step one step back, one step forward, and it had to work in one location, not work in the other location. And so it wasn't an easy thing, you know, to pull off from that point of view. And that drove the requirements. As time passed, the requirements developed further to say there's exclusion zones like prisons or schools or government buildings. So you had to block these particular regions out. There became more complexities, for instance, that as someone is closer to a border, you need to check them more frequently to make sure they don't cross over the border Different states have different rules now. Louisiana, for example, they have parishes, the equivalent of, of counties. Some parishes say it's legal, some don't. Now you have someone in a car or even cycling and going from parish A to parish while B. while cycling. Yeah, I mean, you could be, right? Why it's not? It's dangerous, right? but... Um, <laughs> yeah, why not? Depends who you're betting on, I guess. But how do you predict as a geolocation provider, where will this person be in a minute? What direction are they going? What's the traffic like in this situation? Will the traffic permit them to get to the next parish in time? So it gets messy and complicated. So it's like an yeah. SAT question. Jim's on a bike, placing a yeah. bet, going 10 miles an hour and has a stoplight in front of him. Every state has it. Every state's slightly different. It's a requirement for every state. And so on one side of the Delaware River, you're in Pennsylvania. On the other side of the Delaware River, you're in New Jersey. And the geolocation software is responsible for saying which side of the river you're on. And Correct and saying if you're allowed to bet or not. So why don't you set up why geolocation 
sorry, geocomply since they're the 800 pound gorilla. Why don't you set up for the audience why they have such a monopolistic position in the marketplace right now? Of that 250 yeah. million, what percentage yeah. are they? Yeah. 98%, 99%? No. Yeah, roughly, right? Yeah. Until we showed up, they were 100% of the market. We're just starting to commercialize. Well, technically um, not 100% because we did our own. You did your own, so okay. They weren't, okay. they don't do us, so they're not 100. Gotcha. Yeah, so, let, you know, they had the foresight to see that the U.S. might have regulated iGaming and online sports betting one day. They started over a decade ago, so very few people at that point were willing to make a bet on when will the U.S. legalize this. I've been in online sports betting and iGaming since the mid-90s and waiting for that moment. So forecasting was very difficult. I think partly luck, they got the timing right, and just partly conviction. The first market advantage was huge for them. They were the only choice when people were going live. When I was looking to help win go live, GeoComply was the only option. You didn't shop around because there wasn't anyone else. So getting 100% market share was a no-brainer, obviously, in, in that situation. The situation's changed now. There's competition. Not just us. There's others, too. I think it's probably an interesting time to GeoComply, honestly. Like, it's not easy to go, I think, culturally from an, being an organization that has never had to deal with competition to all of a sudden having to deal with very strong competition, right? That goes through sales teams, marketing teams, engineering teams. And so they're transforming now to react to this situation. And I think that's good for the health of the industry. So I'll push back on you a little bit because I, I think Smarkus is in quite a unique position. When we decided to go after the American market in 2018, you know, when things got legalized, we went to GeoComply like everybody else. And I yep. think they gave us a, I should go back and check, but I think they said it'll cost you half a million dollars for a year. We're a small startup. Like mm. we watch our expenses very closely. And I, I said, fuck that. I'm not paying GeoComply half a million dollars a year to look at the phone and the GPS on the phone. So I, we ended up building it ourselves. So I would say operators did have a choice. They just decided to take the easy path and use a vendor rather than- Which states were you operating in at the time? Indiana and Colorado. Uh, my reaction to that is, I think, yes, that if you're in two states or three states and you have the engineering resources, like it's doable, certainly. As you get to a wider number of states, the regulations vary, they evolve. It just becomes an issue of priorities for you. Do you want to spend a, you know, I mean, we've got 40 plus engineers just full time working on certain aspects of geolocation. And so, you know, is that going to be the priority for operators? doesn't seem like that's where operators want to spend their resources. Yeah, well, I mean, I would push back and say that there's an FT article about a week and a half ago about Blackstone's investment into GeoComply, and I think they cited BetMGM Bet spends $8 million a year on yeah. geolocation software, and they're like a tier, not tier, yeah, they're, they're tier one or tier one, one-ish, yeah. but they're sort of the fourth or fifth operator, perhaps, yeah. and they're spending $8 million a year. Yeah. So I would say that they do have some fuel in the tank to spend on a few engineers to do it. Yeah, I think they are spending eight, but I don't think they're going to keep spending eight. Right? right. That's the change. That's um, where you come in. Yeah. I mean, that's the big change coming to the market. The pricing, there's lots of innovation technically that's happening also in geolocation, but there's definitely a pricing change coming because the current pricing is just, as you put it, it's gouging. So why don't you talk about the complexity of it? Because I, I sort of flippantly call it millions of dollars spent on checking your phone GPS. Right. What would you say to that? Do you think it's $300 million or geocomply geo to check somebody's phone? Or do you think it's a little bit more complex? Yeah. Uh, here's why, why it's more complicated than just checking GPS. Uh, the GPS, first of all, 
doesn't work a reasonable percentage of the time. Mm -hmm. As we have today in London, when it's very cloudy conditions, rainy conditions, you can get bad data back from the GPS. People are inside buildings. I'm from Philly. When I go to the games at Lincoln Financial Field, if I'm in a certain part of the stadium or in a suite, I just can't get a lock. And, you know, I'm also a casual better. I will often get, hey, you're not in Pennsylvania. Sorry, we can't take your bet. So it's not the case that that's happening 20, 30 percent of the time. That happens some low single digit percent of the time. Mm -hmm. I've talked to operators, including tier one operators. They ballpark. It's somewhere between three to five percent of the time they end up getting geolocation errors. Put yourself in the shoes of a tier one operator. Three percent is you're talking tens of millions of dollars of revenue. Mm -hmm. It's a very big deal to close that last mile. So getting it right. I would say 95% of the time by checking GPS, not that hard to do. And it's low cost. You want to get it right 99.9% .9 of the time. So how do you close that it's, gap? It's very hard. So that's what I was referring to earlier, the technical innovation, right? There's a lot that can be done to close that gap. So I'll give you a few examples of things. So this happens to me often. It happens to many people I know. You can go to Twitter and take a search and see that it's not an uncommon problem. You're sitting on your couch at home, watching the game, placing bets, bet number one, two, three, all fine. You're on your next bet, and all of a sudden you're not in the state anymore. Right? So what happened? Maybe you just moved two feet over on the couch to reach for something, or a plane flew overhead and your GPS signal was blocked. And on that particular read, you were not locatable. And then you didn't place that bet revenue loss uh, for the operator. So as an example of innovation in this particular case, all of our smartphones these days have accelerometers in them, right? We know if you're moving. So if the last read showed that you were on your couch and now it's been five minutes or 10 minutes and checking the accelerometer, we know that you haven't moved. It's a clear thing to say you're still there, even though we can't read your GPS at this point or other signals, right? So that's a very simple example of where there can be innovation. The other side of this is getting it right in terms of people who are trying to spoof their location, right? Because that, that creates liability for the operators. And there's a hundred plus spoofing techniques people do from what I would call very casual spoofers, like just pop on a VPN, to professional spoofers who are creating thousands of accounts from overseas and trying to do bonus abuse, right? And we have to be able to catch all of these scenarios. So in that scenario, take an example of someone is showing up in the Midwest, maybe in the middle of a field, right? That's where they are at this moment. But the altimeter in their phone is showing that they're 160 feet high, which suggests they're in some high-rise building. Mm -hmm. Something doesn't match up there, right? And so all kinds of signals could show that, hey, they're in a valid location. But when you check the altimeter, you see that they're not, right? Mm -hmm. So that becomes one way to help anti-spoofing be more rigorous, right? Mm -hmm. When you start to catalog like all of the ideas that you can use to enhance location detection, I mean, we see there's still tremendous room for innovation in the space, right? That's our main focus. In the industry, it's called pass rates. What percent of the users pass the location check? And so our main focus is be number one on that. And mm -hmm. from our current clients who have had GeoComply, we're being told that we're already better on that percentage. But we know there's still room for improvement because we've got a ton of stuff on our product roadmap. When you say pass rate, I think you mean true positives, right? Correct. And yeah. do you measure false positives and true negatives and false negatives? So 
Some of those are obviously tricky to measure, right? right? We can't get it exactly right. But yes, we do collect data that helps us get a very good sense of where we're making mistakes mm -hmm. and then go back and optimize our systems to catch that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, share with you one kind of super interesting thing that we ran into a couple of months ago. So these are what I call professional spoofers. We had guys who appeared to be betting from Kentucky. And I think it was Louisville. Something was off with their accounts that the operator was also sensing there was this was not legitimate play. Hundreds of location checks all in the same location. All of a sudden, one blip somewhere in a foreign country and then back to being in Louisville, Kentucky. So we figured out that, OK, hey, first of all, they've replicated the Wi-Fi networks in a particular neighborhood in Kentucky, wherever they are. Mm -hmm. So when we're when our SDK is doing Wi-Fi scanning, it looks like it's there, right? Mm -hmm. The GPS was hacked and it was also showing in that location. Of course, the IP address, they're using some kind of IP address modification to appear there as well. It also turned out these guys were using essentially a customized Android operating system to bypass routing detection. And the whole motivation is stolen accounts, create thousands of accounts, and it's bonus abuse, right? So now we've had to upgrade our systems to detect this type of very, very advanced spoofing, but it has a serious impact on the operator's bottom line. It's mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost money. So like back to your point about, can you build it yourself? Sure, you can, you can do anything yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a question of what are the priorities, right? Mm -hmm. These kind of things, it's like I call it the last mile problem, getting to 95, 97%, which is pretty good. That's not that costly in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Is closing that last mile actually costs, we ballpark, double of getting to the first 95%. And if you're an operator at scale, those few percentage points matter a lot. Okay. Um, sir? To push back slightly, with Go the pricing it. that geolocation, geocomply, sorry, I'm using those terms interchangeably, which probably makes them very happy. Geocomply is about 1% of the revenue of the operators, just ballpark. So you have some money for the bonus abuse kind of, you know, like if you were to roll it yourself, my point is the money you would save on geo apply, not spending that. Right. You could afford some bonus abuse is sort of what I'm saying. So geo comply has a monopoly. They sued you, I believe. And I assume you can't go into tons of details because I understand that litigation is still pending. But can you say whatever you can about sure. what's going on in terms of geo comply coming after you from an intellectual property perspective? Yeah, so there was a lawsuit before I joined the company. They sued for patent infringement. They lost that lawsuit. Interestingly, the judge also violated their patent in the process. It was a big loss. And they're now appealing that process. We're super confident the appeal will end up in our favor, but we have to go through the process. It's really not a lot more I can say about that, you know, at, at this time. But I think the fact that the lawsuit was placed and the, the patent itself was invalidated that gives some suggestions on kind of the, the practices and anti-competitive practices that are taking place, you know, in this industry. Do you think it's fair play for a company to sue for that? Or do you think that they're kind of... Yeah, they're allowed to sue. I mean, you know, there are suits where there's a genuine issue and there are suits that are intended to throw banana peels in companies' way, right? I wasn't here at the time, but, you know, we're certainly running into friction where we feel that we don't have what I would call equal market access at this mm -hmm. time. Now that situation is changing because as operators also see that there's an alternative coming into the market, as they renew their contracts, et cetera, they're not agreeing to such restrictive closets, et cetera. So things are moving in the right direction very quickly. 
And I hope that we compete more on merit rather than on these kinds of tactics as uh, this industry matures. Mm -hmm. The, uh, which this FT article, um, for those of you interested in this, I, I recommend you check out the FT article because it lays out a lot of these issues. There's something in there that I didn't realize that GeoComply put in exclusivity contracts or sort of non-compete contracts. That seems quite crazy. I mean, I'm sure it's crazy from your perspective. It's crazy yeah. from my perspective. I mean, I can't say much about that, honestly, Jason, but yes. I think it just, I, it, it feels like to me, GeoComply is just completely abusing their position in the marketplace. But at the same time, like I said, which you might disagree with, operators did have a choice, even though they, they had the choice to build it themselves and just yeah, nobody that's, decided to That's do. a fair point. I mean, my comment was operator and choice of vendors, right? But yeah. You can always do it yourself. Yeah, they were the only vendor yeah. for sure yeah. uh, until yeah. you guys came along. There are a couple of states, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, I don't recognize them off the top of my head that, that you know, they have this sort of church and state policy that if you're going to self-police, that leads to some risk, right? Mm -hmm. Which I completely and, disagree with. I mean, how, why is that? Why shouldn't a company self-police? Well, I don't view geolocation as policing. I mean, you can kind of deconstruct any aspect of sports betting to be like, do you need yeah. an outside party to be involved? like settlement and money transfer and the prices that you make like why should that be little, i don't view it as sort of a policing aspect i view it a little different a, i think how so if, if there was an operator that was willing to let players from outside the physical boundaries mm -hmm. of their license where the license covers play mm -hmm. that would be an issue and they can do that if they're self-policing but that's easy to test i mean you how would you, the regulator know disgruntled betters who are doing that would probably blow the whistle. So like if I lost a million dollars and I was betting outside the boundaries, I would definitely go to the regulator and say, hey, I was outside the boundaries. They'll find mm -hmm. it that way. You drive to the border and test it yourself. That's another way to do it. So I don't think you need, Yeah, I wouldn't agree that you sort of need a third-party geolocation to quote-unquote police. Also, you guys are would be conflicted as well because your interest is to make the operator happy. It's not to make the regulator happy. Not to say that you would be incentivized to break the law, but you would yeah. be incentivized to not, quote unquote, police the operator as well. Now, I have to disagree with you on that because we're licensed, right? We spent millions getting our licenses and these are huge investments for companies, you know, at our size to get these licenses. We risk our licenses if we let players come in mm. who shouldn't be coming in. And if we don't have licenses, we can't do business. That logic is the same for the operator. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't stand to really gain by letting someone illegal come in, right? That's what the regulator is looking for. Uh, I would argue the operator do. does as well. The, the only thing is, I've heard this argument before. When I think when we wanted to get a license in Indiana, we had right. the same pushback from the operator. And, right. and I think it's a bullshit argument. Sorry, from the regulator. I think it's a bullshit argument that you can't quote unquote police yourself because I don't view it as policing. I view it as living to your license conditions and you know, follow yeah. the laws yeah. and, you know. Most states don't have this, as I said, it's, I think it's just a couple of states that have this point of view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, we're not against people doing it themselves, right? We Great. just think that, <laughs> yeah, if someone wants to build it on their own, go for it, right? That's yeah. not our view. Our view is that I think we can provide better value than doing it, you know, on your own. So how's it going in the marketplace? I, I guess you're sort of up against it because GeoComply has these restrictive contracts, I assume they've sent letters to everybody saying they're in breach of our patent, blah, blah, blah. So they're probably scaring people from switching you. So you just sort of have a, sounds like a long cycle to kind of like, as these people, as these operators get less afraid of the big bad wolf, they'll switch to you over time. 
things are actually going great. We have signed some very, we, we've signed almost two dozen customers in the last 10-ish months. Some of those are very big customers. We recently announced that we just found price picks that was in a bid against GeoComply. There's another very big announcement coming in a couple of weeks um, where we also want to bid against GeoComply and that. So things are moving in the right direction very quickly. And what I'm seeing from the market is there's a strong desire for alternative and the due diligence process. Of course, they look at price. That becomes a key topic, but it's also a quick topic. You know, there's not a lot to discuss there. What really takes time is digging into the tech. Is it actually better? Is it more reliable? Is the location accuracy better? And so we're getting How's your poked, couch detection? poked in a couch. I like that <laughs> word. Yeah, maybe I'll, if I can plagiarize that. Um, Are you eating Doritos or uh, not? <laughs> I just, be cool. I'm thinking about the sad American. <laughs> it's just like on his couch all day long, like move a little bit, go out for a walk, get a dog. We, we could probably help with that. So these are the points that we're getting due diligence on. And from the bigger tier ones, they're going to want to watch us have a little bit of a track record, right? Sure, um, yeah. It's because it's a mission critical. We go down, they go down, right? They want to make sure everything's solid. So I get that. But I anticipate that we move into tier one later this year mm. or first half of next year, right? I don't see that not happening at this point. And so, yeah, I mean, look, out of the 200, 250 million odd, Tam, just in the US, for us to get next two, three years, somewhere between 50 to 100 of that seems very doable, right? And on the surface, for people who aren't familiar with the business, that might seem like a, a very fast, high climb. But you have to keep in mind that because it's such a concentrated industry that a few of the big clients can account for a vast majority of that very quickly, right? Right. And then once you win one, then it's a domino effect from there, right? right. And I do think this market is just going to change into typical SaaS market competitions, which is merit and priced and service-based, right? What do you bring to the table that helps my business grow? How much does it cost? And how good are you when I call you with a problem? That's it, right? And, you know, we're just focused on that. As somebody that's been around this industry for a while and as a better yourself, what do you think about the industry? Where do you think the industry's at in the United States? Altogether, I would say it's still relatively early innings. There's, you know, I'm a very product-focused guy, user experience guy. That's been the driving force behind my career. And as I look towards, you know, what the products today offer, they're much better than they were two, three years ago. Don't get me wrong. And there's a lot of great teams working on this stuff. If you look at what's possible, there's still a lot of room to grow. And so I think, you know, as this grows, the market size will grow too. I'll give you just a personal example. My wife, who is not a better, but she would be interested if the interfaces weren't so scary. You load it up and there's all these numbers and you just really don't know what's going on. And it feels like I'm going to do something stupid. And so to access these untapped market segments, I think lots of product innovation is coming. And I know that the industry is aware of this. It's not you know, something people don't realize. But because of the way the tech stacks came about, things were licensed from existing companies, uh, primarily here in the UK, other parts of Europe, things we wanted to get to market quickly. But now companies are realizing, hey, if we rebuild things, some companies are building things from scratch, we'll see much better user experiences as time goes forward. I look at it as an entertainment business and mm -hmm. you know, you've got to provide a great user experience. Right now you tap guys like me or more serious betters who are willing to put in the time and effort to go into the learning curve of this thing. Mm -hmm. That's literally the tip of the iceberg, in my view, of the number of people who would be willing to bet. 
who do you think is doing it the best right now? They're all roughly the same, honestly, at this mm -hmm. point. If I look at the major players between BetMGM, DraftKings, uh, FanDuel, I, I bet on all of these. Um, they're all roughly the same at this point. There's some innovation going on in some of the tier twos also, but you know they are hamstrung by the technology because they're using third-party technology. It's not easy to change. BetRivers is doing a few interesting things. I you know I like their product a lot, but again, I think they know that there's a big roadmap ahead of them to solve for these things I was talking about earlier. And you personally, how important is price to you? Is that something that's on your your wish list, or do you bet more based on experience? Just you mean odd shopping? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, do, you do odd shopping. Not usually, like I would put myself in the category of a casual better. So it's just not worth the time for me. And it's more social experience. Buddies are there and hanging out and placing some bets. But yeah, if it's a bigger bet, I will, right? I'll do that. I have plenty of friends who are very serious betters. They will do odd shopping. I know lots of people also who do odd shopping beyond the legal sites, right? And that that's another challenge. The offshore operators, I think. So I read a stat that this Super Bowl, we're expecting about 65 or 70 million people to bet online in the U.S., but only about less than half of those are betting on legal U.S. sites. Mm -hmm. And that also comes down to this odd shopping is a big issue there. How's um, the geolocation software of the offshore bookmakers? They're not worried about <laughs> geolocation as far as I know. I don't, I don't understand why they don't do better enforcement of that. That, that feels pretty yeah. easy to enforce. All you need to do is do secret shopper stuff or the offshore bookmakers find out who their payment method is and then shut that down. That's been a head scratcher for me for a long time. I, I assume it's down to lack of resources with the enforcement agencies. Yeah, you know, be. years ago, like, you know, there was some effort towards doing that and they had some success in shutting down some of these companies, but there hasn't been much effort since. It's doable as far as I know, and operators are paying big license fees and they should want that. And I think it's good for the consumer. Yeah, if you're if you're a district attorney out there, all you need to do is uh, go to an offshore bookmaker, be a secret shopper, deposit, and see where the money goes, and then that's how you would shut these these guys down. I think it's crazy that the United States doesn't enforce this stuff better. Yeah, and what have you seen elsewhere though? I mean, prior to this, I was with the largest real money gaming company in India and operating. There's also offshore operators there. Not much yeah. enforcement against those offshore operators. Similar thing here as well. Yeah. Well, my preference would be it should be open and legal everywhere. Everybody yep. should be licensed. There should just be a tax you have to pay everywhere, and yep. and we get on with it. The fact that it's such a closed industry or illegal in most of the world is also ridiculous. It's a little bit, in my opinion, like marijuana. I think. Marijuana should be legal everywhere and just tax it and regulate it. Yeah. I think the world is slowly moving towards that direction. Cause very slowly. Yeah, very if you, slowly. If you put on a map where it's legal to sports bet, like properly legal, the map would be mostly empty. My guess is 5 to 10% of the map would be permitting sports betting and, and not most. And probably uh, 90 to 95% of the world does sports betting of sure. some form. So. Sure. To me, it's crazy that governments, A, make it illegal and B, don't enforce the laws that they have in place. Yeah, um, it's not an easy topic, though, I think, because cultural reasons, you know, are, are a big issue. There is anti-gambling, you know, sort of factions of society that mm -hmm. need to be addressed also. I mean, just to share a prior experience with you. So I, I used to be managing director of a company here in the UK called Cantor Gaming at mm -hmm. one point. We had a deal with Las Vegas Sands to take Venetian Casino online. 
eventually, as the leadership of that organization looked at you know, the opportunity, they decided that this is not something we want to engage in. And as you might know, Sheldon Adelson eventually became the main proponent against online gambling. Because he wanted know, to protect the, the kids. Protect the kids is part of it, but... I'm saying know, that Chung and no, no, I know, wanted to protect his uh, monopoly of, not monopoly, but yeah, his, his terrestrial business. There was, I mean, yeah, I was pretty involved in that. and And there was a genuine component of like, this might just be crossing the line, right? But they didn't understand at the time all the safeguards that could be put in place and how this could be done more responsibly. And so that's why I think like, if you look at what's happening in the industry now, one of the subjects that's growing in chatter is responsible gaming. And and there's, Mm -hmm. I see more investment happening in that space. And that as these things happen, I think this 90% number will dwindle down, you know? Are you going to tie that to the guy on the couch? So if he doesn't move, lost, if he's betting 10 times in a row, you're going to be like, hey, man, get up on the couch or we'll let you bet again. We have no clue how much someone bets. Well, you have your accelerometer, so you can... uh, We know they're sitting there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but we don't know if they're betting, right? We don't know how much they're betting. Like, (laughs) we we don't even know who the person is because it's anonymous to us. You should tie, uh, X-Point should do a deal with the the Apple Watch. So it's like, hey, man, get up and move. (laughs) You've been way too sedentary today. The awesome blood flow might actually encourage more betting. So, We have a tradition on this podcast. I like to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? So you're asking for, I'm hoping you're asking for X point and not for me. No, I'm asking for you. For, you, for me. What do you want um, to be when you grow up? Tell us I, your dreams. And my dream is very simple. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life in the gaming space. I love this industry. For me, this is retirement, right? There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. And I love early stage, frankly. So as I move forward, you know, it's just what's the next big thing? You know, I think next number of years, three, five, seven years are focused on geolocation. And we'll see what's next after that. But it's going to be in this industry. Great. Well, thanks for stopping by. All right. Thanks, man. The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Learn more about Optimove by requesting a demo at optimove.com slash business of betting. And if you like what you see, you will get your first month free.